Amen. Amen. Grab hold of a Bible, guys. If you got one with us, you join us in Daniel chapter 9. Back in the book of Daniel after our kind of excursion through the week of Easter and excited to be back here with us. Hopefully you got a Bible and you're making your way there. If not, there's Bibles around you, page number on the screen. You can use an electronic device, any way that works so that you're in the Scripture with us. And we want you to be there with us. So that's true in here. If you're in the overflow, if you're watching online, hey, hear the invitation. Grab a Bible. Join us, follow along, and may God speak to you this morning through His Word. That is our need, and it's certainly what we want to ask for. So let's take one more moment right now and pray for that. Would you guys just join me? Let's ask that God would open up to us His Word. I'm going to leave, but I'm hoping you would ask as well that God would make His truth known to you. Father, here we are, and just getting a moment to approach and, and seek you this morning. I thank you for your Word. I thank you for its power. God, help us to hear it. Would you grant us help and favor so that we indeed have ears to hear what you would say to us? Lord, look upon us now, and if there's anything lacking in that, where there's cleansing, where there's strength needed, where there's encouragement or help, would you work in such a way so that each one of us hear you, that you would speak to us, give us those, that ability this morning, and speak to us each one of us, in your word. We ask for that together, and we ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Living right side up in an upside down world. That's a reality for us. In fact, that's what we've described or given a title to our series in the book of Daniel, a place of recognizing that our world is upside down. And it is through the sin and brokenness that's there. And yet, how to genuinely walk in that and live right side up? Well, Daniel is a book that gives us that, that helps us understand what that looks like. And one of the keys that we find out in the book of Daniel is that prayer is one of the things that help us do that, help us live right side up in an upside down world. That's what I want to draw your attention to this morning and hoping and help that it would meet you. But I do that by also letting you know that we want to kind of continue a thought that we started weeks ago. Yeah, it was a number of weeks ago back in Daniel chapter 6 that we talked about this and we looked at Daniel's prayer life. And we talked about that all the way through the book of Daniel, he is this. And we talked about one who was really genuinely actively praying, who was consistent and faithful And I want to tell you that by itself gives us great help, that what Daniel was as a man of prayer wasn't just in a moment, it was a huge part of his whole life. Now, if you missed that study, it's available online. You can go back and get it in Daniel 6, where we talked about Daniel being a man of prayer. But now from that this morning, I want to draw you to a single prayer, a prayer that's recorded for us in Daniel chapter 9 to watch Daniel pray. And I want us to learn what God would have for us from a man who prayed and his prayer life being influential on us. So as we head towards Daniel 9, it might be good for us just to notice what prompts this prayer, where it really comes from. And it is what I want to call a biblical prayer. What do I mean by that? Well, notice with me verse 1 and 2. It says, in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. So we get a time stamp laid out here. Daniel tells us when he's praying about this. It's in the first year of Darius, the the son of Ahasuerus, who's the Mede, at the beginning of the Medo-Persian Empire. Quick technical note, that would actually take chapter 9 and put it before chapter 6, kind of chronologically. Daniel 6 finds itself later in, in that reign of Darius, but this is in the very beginning of that reign. And again, Daniel is finding itself there. Well, Daniel's there in the beginning of that, and we have his prayer, but it's interesting again to see what prompts it. He's literally reading the Bible. Yeah, it lets us know there in the first year of his reign, verse 2, Daniel understood by the books, that is the books of the Bible, by the word of the Lord, he's doing that. And it's worth just quickly pausing and saying, Daniel's reading his Bible. 
That's good news. I mean, that, that's just a good example right off the bat that Daniel is reading the scriptures himself and certainly a place that ought to be in our lives where the Bible's there. But what's interesting is he wasn't just reading it, he was understanding it. Yeah, again, catch it in verse 2. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books. God wants you to understand. He has given us his, his word, and there's power in reading it, and there's power in understanding it. And for some of you, that just totally, you're like, of course, that goes together. But I'm speaking to somebody right now that, you know, sometimes the danger is that Bible reading can almost become a check mark, like, hey, I read my chapter. <laughs> like, I don't understand anything I read, but I read it, you know. It's like, I don't know why it says it, I don't, and I don't even know I really care. And I'm just telling you, there's something about reading the scriptures and then like, why does it say that? What, what, what am I supposed to be learning from that? Growing an understanding of it is certainly what we need to do, and Daniel did. He was reading the prophet Jeremiah, and he understood what he was reading. So what did he understand? Well, we need to think this through for a moment because we need to think about where Daniel is. Daniel understood what he read. He, he sees this whole thing, and he finds himself in, in a place that where Daniel is, he is living in what we would call the Babylonian captivity. That is, that Israel has been conquered. They've been conquered by Babylon. They've been literally carried away, and it was a judgment that God brought upon them. I mean, it's literally why Daniel's there. The whole nation of Israel was conquered by Babylon and re literally relocated you know, into the, the nation of Babylon, and they've been there for 70 years. Daniel's there in that captivity, and he's reading this. So what was he reading? Well, probably he was reading what you and I would know as Jeremiah 25. I won't give you all of the chapter. If you want, you can go back and read the whole chapter later, but let me just give you pieces of it, and I'll put it up on the screen for us. He says it to us this way, in Jeremiah 25, verse 5, he says, repent now, everyone, of his evil way and his evil doings, and dwell in the land that the Lord has given you and, and your fathers forever and ever. So this is God speaking. He's actually speaking through Jeremiah and saying, hey, you guys need to repent. You need to turn from your sin. You need to turn and walk in my ways. He says, do not go after other gods to serve them and worship them. Do not provoke me to anger with the works of your hands. God just reasons with them. And then it just tells us, yet you've not listened to me, says the Lord, that you might provoke me to anger with the works of your hands to your own hurt. You've not responded. You've not done this, God says. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not heard my words, behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, says the Lord, and Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant, and bring them against this land. Because you haven't obeyed, I'm going to take this Babylon and all the armies of the north, and they're literally going to come and besiege, and they're going to conquer Israel, and they did. They did. They conquered them and carried them into captivity. God goes on to simply say, and this whole land shall be a desolation and astonishment, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. That was God's prescription. That was God's judgment because of their sin. But at the end of those 70 years, God says, what he would do, he says, then it will come to pass when the 70 years are completed that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation and the land of the Chaldeans and for their iniquity, says the Lord, and I will make it a perpetual desolation. At the end of the 70 years, Babylon's going to face judgment because of their you know, part in this whole place, their part in this whole thing. But for Israel, he says, for thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word towards you and cause you to return to this place. These are the things that Daniel's reading. I mean, he's in this space. He's in this place of captivity. He's in this place where, you know, Israel's been taken there. The judgment's been, it was told to last for 70 years. Daniel's reading it. And what might be helpful to understand is the time is almost up. Yeah, by the calendar, we know this, that Daniel has been in Babylon's captivity in the first year of Darius the Mede for somewhere between 67 and 68 years. Daniel's in his 80s, probably taken as a teenager, that he was taken in the first, you know, kind of time that Babylon you know, takes him to captivity. So I just want you to think through for a moment. 
I mean, Daniel's there. He's, you know, he's kind of reading through Jeremiah 70 years. It's been 67, 68 years. We're almost there. Daniel's probably beginning to think through. He's looking this through and, and recognizing that this is beginning to take place. In fact, part of it has already begun to take place. God had said at the end of those 70 years that Babylon itself would be judged, and they've just been defeated. The Medo-Persian Empire has come into power. They've stepped into this place where they're beginning to, to, to move into this whole place. And then Daniel is going to respond to that. Yeah, this whole you know, ch chapter, this whole prayer becomes a picture of how he responds to it. And I think it's worth just noting for a moment that he's going to respond in prayer. That the way he's going to respond to this is not a way of demanding or you know, just figuring it out, but he's going to ask God and bring this before him in prayer. Now, quick technical note. Some of what Daniel might be thinking through is actually wondering if it's actually time. Well, what do you mean, Jim? Well, Bible students then and Bible students now kind of wondered about that because although Daniel was taken in the first time that Nebuchadnezzar came against the land of Babylon and he conquered them the first time and he took some of the people captive, it would actually happen three times. Uh, Daniel was taken in the first time they were conquered, then Israel would rebel again, and Nebuchadnezzar would come against him. And finally, in the third time, he came and desolated the land, destroyed the temple, burned it, took everybody into captivity. And so Bible students wondered then and wonder now, so when did the 70, you know, kind of countdown, when does it start? Hey, without getting too technical, interesting enough, there's actually three returns. Uh, there's actually three spaces where they come back out of Babylon, and pretty much it kind of works with each one of them. But Daniel might not have known that. I mean, he might have wondered, like, okay, is it time? I mean, are we there, or do we still have a few more, dec a couple more decades to go? One way or another, he's looking at it and probably begins to understand, but he doesn't move into a place of overconfidence or just technically figuring it out. Well, one more time, what he's going to do is he's going to pray that Daniel is responding to that, that Daniel sees what he's reading in Jeremiah 25, and that then fuels his prayer life. Yeah, that then becomes a part of how he prays. Can I just use this as a quick encouragement to you? Maybe, again, this is already just in place in your life, but if it's not, can I tell you that God is looking to do a work inside your life that you would spend time with him every day? And in that time, you would read his word and allow that to speak to you, and you would pray to him. Now, that's a powerful reality that is certainly being held out to us in Scripture for each and every one of us. But for some of us, it's a weird space that we can almost disconnect the two, that we read our Bible and we pray. And so our prayers include, you know, praying for us and praying for our family, and maybe we have a, a list of prayers of people that we pray for, and please don't misunderstand me. That's a good thing. <laughs> That's a good thing. If you have a, a, a practice of praying through things or praying for people, hey, good. Don't let that stop. But I want you to think about this, that for Daniel, part of his prayer life was a conversation. He's reading the scriptures and responding to what he's reading in prayer. And I want you to know that that's somehow how God wants to work in you, that your time with him isn't meant to be, okay, this is when I listen, you know, and this is when I talk, you know. You know it's like, you know, I, I listen when I read the Bible, and then I do all the talking when I pray. No, there ought to be a place that when you read the scripture, you talk to him about it. Like, God, look at this. I mean, I read this, and, and, and that actually moves you to talk to him about what he's talking to you about. And interestingly enough, you will find that it is really a conversation. God is speaking, and you're, and you're interacting, and that's what Daniel's doing. He's reading, and that prompts him, therefore, to pray. Charles Spurgeon said it this way. He said, oh, that you studied your Bibles more. <laughs> oh, that we all did how we could plead the promises, how often we should prevail with God when we could hold to him his word and say, fulfill this word, which, which is to thy servant, wherein thou hast caused me to hope. Oh, it is grand praying when your mouth is full of God's word, for there is no word that can prevail with him like his own. He says, oh, that you guys read your Bible and then prayed, <laughs> prayed what you read, took God's word back to him, that his word became a fuel to your prayer life. And I just want to tell you, that's what Daniel's doing, and it's a good example. Hey, one more just kind of quick, just kind of point. It's also worth noting that the prayer is recorded for us, and Daniel's prayer becomes a good example for us. Simply put this way, 
hey, if you're struggling with your prayer life, and most of us do in phases and seasons of our life, can I just tell you one of the things that's really helpful is to note the prayers of the Bible and sometimes just pray them. Like, you know, kind of just, hey, Daniel 9, like if you're struggling, about just, just go and pray that prayer or go in and pray some of the prayers that Paul has in, in his letter. Sometimes the prayers that are recorded become prayers you can pray and they kind of grow your prayer life because you're like, I, I hadn't even thought about praying that way. But when I look at this prayer and I actually let it become part of my prayer, it can become a helpful thing. And so the Bible should fuel and be the source of our prayer life. Certainly it was that way for Daniel. So he's responding. He's reading the Bible and he's responding. And it's worth noting how he responds. Verse 3. Then I set my face toward the Lord God to make request by prayer and supplication with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. Daniel has what I want to call a determined prayer life. That when he's thinking about this right now, he says it very clearly. He says, I set my face. I set my face, you know, there in verse 3, toward the Lord to make prayer, to make requests by prayer. That's a powerful picture that speaks of something that's intentional, like you're doing it on purpose, and, and not to be distracted from it, just kind of in an indistractable way because you've said, hey, I'm going to pray. To set your face towards something is a key part of that. And simply put, hey, if you're going to be a person who prays, can I tell you? this has to become part of the thing that you learn how to do in your life. I don't know if you have figured it out, but prayer is a spiritual battle. I mean, so the moment that you intend to put yourself to pray, so often there is a spiritual kind of Satan himself, kind of whatever his, his, his work against it, tries to mess us up. So what happens for many of us is we are so easily distracted. I mean, just, I'm not talking about you personally. It was people in first service, but it's good for you guys to hear it as well. Um, but you know how it works. So you sit down there and pray, and you're going to pray, and then all of a sudden, you're like, wait, it's like, how did I get over here? You know, it's like, you know, all of a sudden, you become brilliant. Like, your brain works better than it's worked in so long. Like, you remember all these things you need to do, and, and you're having a hard time praying. Can I just tell you, one of the things that has to be learned is how to press through that. And each one of us is different, so I'm not telling you how to do that. I'm just telling you, you're going to have to figure it out because you're going to have to recognize, if I'm going to pray, I'm going to have to be intentional about it. And I'm going to have to be just not able to be distracted. I think about one of the guys in our church years ago had told me that he found that he, you know, literally did become brilliant when he prayed. He said, so I'm just going to kind of, you know, grab onto that. So he says, every time he prays, he got out a piece of paper and a pen and just laid it there. And so anything that came to his mind that he needed to do, he would just write it down and then he could leave it you know, because it would happen. It's like, oh, I need to call so-and-so. <laughs> I need to write an email. I need to send a text. And if he, if he didn't kind of write it down and push it away, it just, it totally distracted him. But he was like, oh. and it just helped to say, hey, this is how I do that. How I say, okay, I'll deal with that in a moment. When I'm done praying, I'll come back. Because if you're not careful, again, you'll find yourself just all over the map. And Daniel says, that's not me. I, I set my face to pray. In fact, it tells us there in that verse 3, not only did he set his face to pray, but he did so with supplications, with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. That he did so in a way that, well, we might say that it's just fully involved. Fasting, a place where you set aside eating food. The Bible calls us in places and tells us that that, that can be a part of our lives as well. Sackcloth and ashes, much more in that cultural as, as a picture of humility and brokenness, not necessarily required for us, not bad if you wanted to do so either, but understand this, it does picture something of somebody really being involved. I mean, fully and just, I mean, just saying, okay, I'm praying, I'm praying intentionally, I'm praying, praying seriously, and I'm fully in this moment. It's a good model for us to say that Daniel becomes someone who, living right side up in an upside down world, prays. He's responding to the Bible. He's praying in, in very intentional ways. So he's going to do so, and his prayer really begins in a way that's also helpful for us. Notice in verse 4, I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him and those who keep his commandments. 
Daniel begins in a place that he puts his eyes on God. He worships him. He kind of just in adoration in that sense, making that a part of it. And it's just, again, a helpful piece for us to quickly say how incredibly helpful this is in prayer. That in prayer to kind of begin where Daniel just sets his eyes and he recognizes who God is. He does so. He says, okay, God, you're the Lord. And he names him. He says, he's, you, know, he says you know, he aims to that. He says, I prayed to the Lord my God. Quick technical note. It is interesting to quickly just note this. Some of you will notice there, especially if you have like the New King James or King James, that the word Lord in verse 4 is all capitals. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's a, a biblical reference to letting us know that's God's covenant name, Yahweh, Jehovah, however you want to understand that. And one of the quick technical notes that's interesting is in the book of Daniel, it's only in chapter 9 that you find God's covenant name. I mean, nowhere else is it used in the book of Daniel, but here it is because in many ways it's a, it's a basing itself off of that. Huge in many ways, backdrop, just putting a backdrop to this. But again, the key for us is he's seeing God. He recognizes not only is God the Lord, but he says, you're the great and awesome God. I mean, he just recognize who God is, how, how amazing, how big, how, how fantastic he is. That He's the one, he says, who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments. That he's the faithful God. Hey, that's a good almost theological primer. I mean, this is this place of him saying, hey, this is who God is. And I just want to hold it out to you again as a practical way that one of the things that's helpful in our prayers is to give a space to that at the beginning. I mean, sometimes we might so easily jump into pray, you know, prayer where we're praying about something or for somebody, which is, which is a great place. But one of the things that's so helpful is just to pause and say, God, you're God. <laughs> you are the great and awesome God. I mean, you're the God who, who remembers and keeps all of your promises, and sometimes all by itself, just that focus can raise it, can, can raise your heart. I don't know if you've found it that way, but I have. There have been times that there's been something heavy on my heart or heavy in my life, and it's like, I need to talk to God about this, but I'll begin in that place of just kind of just recognizing who God is, that He's God, and He's the great and awesome God, or whatever, kind of just thinking through His character. Sometimes by the time as I'm done with that, it's like, okay, I'm good. You know, like, I mean, I, I needed to pray about this, but I guess what I really needed was to get my eyes on you. And, and to begin that way, it's a helpful way. So Daniel gives us that, and you'll find it through most of the prayers in the Scripture, by the way a place where it begins with a recognition of who God is and the relationship we have with him, his faithful. Again, a worthy kind of just note for you and I. That said, at this moment, Daniel moves into a picture of just a confessional prayer, a prayer where he's going to confess the sins of, of, of him and his nation before God. In fact, it's worth quickly noting, if you're paying attention to even the number of verses, that this is the largest chunk of the prayer. From verse 5 to verse 14, it's all about Daniel confessing before God. Now, that's powerful. That's just powerful all by itself because that becomes primarily one of the lessons that we need to learn this morning from Daniel is about what that looks like, about what confession looks like in our lives. So let's do this. Let's read all of those verses, and then we'll come back and do our best to at least pull a few nuggets out of this confession that Daniel brings before God. So pick it up there in verse 5, or actually verse 4, just for context. And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him and those who keep his commandments, we have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled even by departing from your precepts and your judgments? Neither have we heeded your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings and our princes and our fathers and all the people of the land. O Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but to us, shame of face, as it is this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, those near and those far off in all the countries which you have driven them, because of the unfaithfulness which they have committed against you. O Lord, to us belongs shame of face, to our kings, our princes, our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, 
though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. Yes, all Israel has transgressed your law and has departed so as not to obey your voice. Therefore, the curse and the oath written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, has been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. And he has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our judges who judged us by bringing upon us a great disaster. For under the whole heaven, such has never been done as what has been done to Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us. Yet we have not made our prayer before the Lord our God, that we might turn from our iniquities and understand your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept the disaster in mind and brought it upon us, For the Lord our God is righteous in all his works which he does, though we have not obeyed his voice. Wow. It's a powerful confession. It's a place where Daniel brings into this moment and bringing before God just the confession of sins. And once more, there is so much there. More than we have time to dive into this morning and thinking it through. But I want to draw you to a few things about this confession that are good examples for us and should actually play into our confession, what God would have for you and I in confessing sins. First thing I want you just to note is that it's just a real connected confession. I'm sure you caught it, but go back and see it in verse 5. We have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly. Verse 6, neither have we heeded the servants, your servants, the prophets. Through all of this, Daniel makes this interesting connection that he's not just praying personally. He's saying, we've done this. This is where we are. That he makes this prayer connected with all of God's people, all of Israel, all of his people, and says, this is where we are. Now, that's a powerful way to pray. Actually, Jesus taught us to pray this way. Jesus told us that that should be a part of our prayer life. Many of you guys know it. We have what's known as the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6. It's something we talk to you about often, that it's a good example prayer. In fact, Jesus, when he gives it, tells us, in this manner, therefore pray. That there is a sense that this becomes a good example for us. And I've told you before, quickly remind you now, I think it can be. It is for me. I pray through the Lord's Prayer every day. Every day, it's a part of my prayer life at least once, and it doesn't mean I just repeat it. I don't. I work through it subject by subject and and spend time in each subject, and it's a really helpful thing to do. It's a great example for any of you guys, and I encourage it, but very specifically, I want to point out to you that it is taught to us as a connected prayer. Would you just note it with me? It begins by saying, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Yeah, part of the way that Jesus teaches us to pray is this idea of connecting with the people of God so that we're not just praying for myself, but we're praying for us as the people of God. Now, don't misunderstand that. It's not wrong to pray singularly. It's not wrong for you to to, to pray for your needs or talk to God very specifically. We have that in Scripture as well. Lots of examples of prayers. So not saying that you can never pray personally where you're just saying, hey, God, this is what I need or I'm praying for this. Do that. But also make your prayer a connected prayer. That to pray as Jesus would teach us to pray is a place where we would connect to other people, where we would say, hey, God, I'm not just praying for me, and I'm not just praying for me and my family. I'm praying for us as God's people. And what if in that connection, it's not just, you know, like me and my family and our church. What if it's the body of Christ across the whole world? And we say, God, I'm, I'm, I'm standing with the people of God right now. I'm standing and bringing this before you. I just want to tell you, that's what Daniel does, and as a part of that, that becomes a part of his confession. What makes this so powerful is a way that he's able to connect to it in a way that isn't critical. It isn't in a place of blaming or judging other people, which sometimes can happen. Sometimes even when people will pray confession kind of prayers, if they even think about praying for the whole world or praying for the body of Christ, they're like, 
God, you know there's a bunch of losers out there. They're just doing bad. <laughs> like, Lord, those people, you know them. You know who I'm talking about. That, those ones. No, there's no part in that. There's no looking down. There's no holding myself up higher. It's a place of saying, God, right now I stand. I stand with the people of God. And, and to do so in a way that would confession, that would do that in a way of connecting. In fact, one of the interesting things about the connection that Daniel does here is that you can do that even when you are doing well. Here's what I mean by that. Daniel is one of the good guys in the Bible. I mean, really, honestly, it's an amazing thing. It's one of those things that's worth your note. The Bible's a really honest book. And so I could say it this way. I think any time that somebody's life is held out to us in Scripture, and more than, say, half a chapter is recorded about their life, you know what God does is most time he records their failures. I mean, he lets us know, like, I mean, we see some of the good things they did, but he also lets us know, boy, they were not always doing so good. So you'd get maybe David and his sin or Noah and his failures. I mean, you would see, you know, Peter and his mistakes. And so, I mean, when God records lives, he takes, he's not at all kind of holding back. He lets us know, hey, honestly, there's, there's some failure here. But there's some unique exceptions. In fact, in the Old Testament, there's really only two. Daniel and Joseph in the book of, of Genesis, people whose lives are recorded for us more than a chapter, and yet in that recording of their lives, it doesn't tell us anything, anything negative about their lives. Now, don't hear that like they're sinless. They weren't. I mean, we know this. All, we are, all of us are sinners, and so the Bible's really clear, so we can apply that and know that Joseph and know that Daniel were indeed sinners, but somehow it didn't mark them in a way that God even records it. So much so that in Daniel 6, when we do see Daniel's prayer life, it lets us know that the people who hated him actually do a search to try to find dirt on Daniel, and they find none. He's a good man. That's a great reality, but here's the danger. Sometimes that reality can make us prideful and even make this kind of connection less available. But what's amazing about that is that's not Daniel. I mean, Daniel here, I mean, he loops himself into the people of God without any, you know, equivocation. He's not like, well, you know, some of us are doing better than others, God, you know, you know like I'm doing better, but these other people, they're turkeys, you know, and so we're just going to, he's like, no, he includes himself through the whole prayer saying, we've sinned, we've committed iniquity, we've not heeded your, your, your words, we've not prayed the way that we ought to pray. He's able to do this in a beautifully connected way, and I just want to tell you, there's something powerful for us in that reality, a place where that kind of connection should be there in our lives, and maybe even just saying it this morning as a part of our confession. You know, I'm talking to somebody right now that you've never done this. I mean, somehow you didn't even know you should or could. I mean, when you confess sins, you've confessed your sins, like, God, I've messed up, and you might have even confessed your family. <laughs> You're like, oh yeah, we're not doing so good, but I don't, have you ever stood, you know, just side to side and just said, God, right now, the entire body of Christ. I just want to stand with them right now and say, God, we, we've sent, we've, we've, we've messed up, we've, we've missed what you've done. That's a beautiful part of confession that can be a part of your lives. In fact, I would say it's meant to be a daily part because it is part of the Lord's prayer where we're coming and saying, God, forgive us our sins. Like, God, I'm praying for us as the body of Christ. I'm joining my family in Christ and saying, God, we need this. It's a powerful reality. All by itself, it's a good place for us to see that Daniel gives us this picture of a connected prayer. So that's one of the lessons we see in Daniel's confession, but we also see just an incredible sincerity, a place where he just says it without any equivocation. Notice how he just puts it there in verse 5 and 6. It says, we have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled, even by departing from your precepts and your judgments. Neither have we heeded your servants, the prophets who spoke in your name to our kings and our princes and our fathers and all the people of the land. It's an amazing thing to watch, just Daniel speaking these words. And as he does so, again, just how powerful it is that he says it with such clarity with such honesty, 
without any way kind of, you know, saying it, you know, in a, well, you know, we've stumbled, or we're not really always up to what we ought to be. It says, like, we send. <laughs> we've sinned. That's who we are. We've sinned. We have committed iniquity. We've done wickedly. We have not done what God said for us to do. I want to tell you, there's power and almost beauty in this in a way that I find my own self just like, oh, I, I mean, just to hear that prayer, it's like, oh, that's just good for my soul. Because sometimes, again, you don't hear it. We, you know, we live in a world where sometimes people talk about sin as, I had a mess up. You know, like, yeah, made a, made, a, made a mistake, you know. I mean, it's not that that's not, you know, but there's not like, no, we sin. <laughs> we committed iniquity. That's what we've done. That's who we are. That's where this is. There's no excuse in it. There's no blaming. There's no downplaying. There's no part in that. He just states it with absolute clarity, like this is what we've done. And that, again, is powerful. The sad reality is that sometimes when you hear even somebody even confessing sin, again, it can often be, kind of a blaming. You know what I mean, right? Yeah, God, you know, I, I didn't do so good, but you know, Lord, if you really, I mean, if you understood what that person did, I mean, boy, they just really pushed me. I mean, I mean, they, I mean, yeah, I lost my temper, but man, you know, that's like, this person really, I mean, and instead of saying, no, Lord, we sinned. No excuse. No, 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 no needing to give, you know, any, any, we, we've sinned. We did iniquity. We've, we've, we've rebelled. God, that's where we are. He makes these statements, and in one sense, again, just gives us a powerful reality of what this looks like. Now, I, I think about that reality. In fact, I can come at it this way. Most of you in this room probably fall on one side of this or the other. I mean, maybe, maybe a few of you, you got this right down the middle, and praise God, this will encourage you. But for many of you, you're on one side of the side of the other. For some of you, your struggle with sin really has got you in some kind of unhelpable condemnation place where you recognize sin in your life. You recognize that you have sinned and that you're part of that whole thing. But what it does for you is it locks you down. I mean, the kind of place that even right now, you're like, I, don't, I shouldn't be here today. Like, the roof's going to come <laughs> collapse on me because, like, I'm such a sinner. I mean, I, I can't even believe that I'm here. And, you know, maybe I shouldn't even be. I mean, I, I'm so bad, and, and, and I just mess up all the time. And, and, I, and it just there's something about who I am. And, and that weight of condemnation actually keeps you from connecting with God. But see, God's telling us that that place of confession is actually part of that connection. I think about how he gives it to us in a familiar verse in 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God says, you know, there's a place where you can be made right. There's a place where that sin can be washed away from you and, and not just a little bit. I mean, it's like he's faithful to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all of it. And yet what a scary thing it is for someone to wrestle with sin in such a way that it keeps you back from confession, that your sin actually keeps you from embracing, like, God, we have sinned. I have, Lord, we, we, I, I need to come in, but in that place of confession, finding help. Again, for somebody, that's where you are. You're struggling with it right now, and this is going to be helpful to say, hey, Daniel gives us a good example of confession. Confession should be a part of your life. It should be a part of, of your soul. But some fall on the other side of it, where in many ways we struggle in our own place, almost a denial of how broken we are that literally makes us arrogant, where in one sense we fail to recognize that these things are fundamentally and, and just essentially true of where we are. I think about that passage that we just read in 1 John, that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us. In verse 8 of that, it says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. He says, if you don't admit this, if you, if you can't confess your, your brokenness to him, you're lying to yourself. You're lying to your own, you're deceiving yourself, and that's not true. It's not true for where you are. That brokenness is us. In Luke's gospel, Jesus tells a great parable, and for you guys who were with us on Wednesday night, we covered it a couple weeks ago. In Luke 18, Jesus gives it this way. And he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves, that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. 
The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even as this tax collector, I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all I possess. So it's a powerful parable, and we already know what it's about. Jesus said, I'm, I'm talking to you guys who trust in yourself, who think that your righteousness somehow it has you in a place that you're not. And he says, you need to understand this. And so he gives us this picture of this Pharisee that comes before, you know, into this place of prayer, and he just begins kind of touting his own good. Like, I, look at all how good I am. Uh, look at all these good things I do. I mean, God's got to be proud of me. I mean, I'm, I'm a pretty good person compared to all these other people. And it's just powerful at the place of looking at his pridefulness. But one of my favorite parts of it is how Jesus words it. Yeah, when he says it, he said, the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. Did you catch that? I mean, in other words, he said that he's just talking to himself. I was like, he's not praying because he's not connecting. I mean, he's just talking to himself. And I think that all oh, but it just I don't know. It just does me funny. I mean, just this whole thing of just imagining is like, hey, it's not even really prayer because his arrogance is keeping him out of that connection. But then he just says, and the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, I'm a sinner. I need your mercy. God, I need what you would only provide. I need your work in that reality. And he goes on to say, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But he who humbles himself will be exalted. So my thought to you again is this. For some of you, in this idea of confession, somehow you fail to recognize how broken you are. So that confession doesn't find itself as much a part of your Christian life as it ought to be. Because you actually think better about yourself than you actually are. So that you, whether you wouldn't say it that way, you may be much more like this Pharisee. It's like, man, look at me. I go to church. I read my Bible. I pray. I'm not like a bunch of these other guys. You know, like, like I'm doing pretty good. But actually, we're not. The Bible's really clear that our brokenness is entire. Like everything about us is tainted by sin. I think about it this way in Isaiah when it speaks about it. It says, but all we like are an unclean thing and all our righteousness are like filthy rags. It says, we're all, we're all broken. We're so broken that even our righteousness is broken. In other words, see, when we think about confessing sin... Sometimes we only think about the category of sin that is what the Bible would say is transgression, which is rebellious, very specific, intentional sin. So that if we confess our sins, we might be like, okay, Lord, I lost my temper. God, I, I, I did something I shouldn't have done. And we confess that, and you should. But we kind of think that's the end of it. So that if there's not really something we did really bad, you know, there's not really a need to confess. I mean, there's not really, I mean, I, I, I actually did pretty good. I, I read my Bible today. I prayed. I, you know, I've gone to church. I mean, I'm pretty good. I mean, not really any need to confess today. But what Isaiah says is even all the good things that we do, sin has tainted them. So that there's not anything we do that isn't tainted by our sin. That even our righteous deeds, even going to church or reading our Bible or praying, things that we'd say, hey, that's a good thing I did. God's like, even that's tainted by your sin. So that you do that and then pride or selfishness, something kind of taints it so that, you know, that it's all bad. In other words, we kind of find ourselves at times thinking this way. You know how it works, right? People can almost imagine their lives and like, okay, here's my bad things, and here's my good things. And you can almost like, you know, kind of picture those as falling on some kind of scale. From a biblical sense, if God were to weigh your life, you have no good things. Like, it's all bad. I mean, even the good things you do is so messed up by your brokenness because we are entirely broken. Sin has poisoned everything about us so that when we come to this, this place of confession, it becomes a place of us recognizing that's genuinely who we are. In other words, there's not a day that you can't come before God and say, God, we are sinners. We've done iniquity. We are broken people. We, we are a people who haven't been what we ought to be. We haven't lived what we ought to live. There's not, I mean, it's not just the days that you had a really bad day. It's every day. 
Confession is meant to be a part of your life, not in some kind of small place, but in every part, but that's where it becomes helpful because God says in that confession is where we find healing, in that place of coming and saying, God, that's who we are. I mean, it would change things. It would change things in your life, even how you are, so that you would sit here this morning and go, you know, we're not a bunch of, you know, some good and some bad people. We're a bunch of bad people who sin has so messed up our lives. We're broken by sin, and we so desperately need God. We so desperately need His help. We so desperately need His work, and that would be a place of sincerely recognizing the level of brokenness in our life is bigger than maybe we've ever imagined. Certainly things that God would seek to draw us to and and help us understand and help us grab into everything that's there. Let's see here. Uh, We're going to... There we go. (laughs) Okay, so that got your attention. And so, yeah, we're going to look at this. And so we're trying to catch attention into a place of understanding that there's a place of confession and sincerely recognizing this is who we are. It's worth also noting that that should bring shame that this recognition of our sin isn't meant to be some kind of casual thing. Certainly it was for Daniel. Notice what he says there as he gives it to us in verse 7. He says, O Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but to us, shame of face, as it is this day, to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, to all Israel, those near and those afar off, in all the countries which you have driven them, because of the unfaithfulness which they have committed against you, O Lord, to us belongs shame of face. To really confess our sins, it has to go that way. And I just need to point that out because there is a danger that we can get to the place that that doesn't impact us the way that we should be. In fact, it was that way for Israel before they went into captivity. When Jeremiah was speaking to them, God speaking through him, he says, were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed, nor did they know how to blush Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall. God looks at them and lets us know that one of the places that had brought them into this this specific place of judgment is that they no longer were even ashamed of it. They were no longer ashamed of it. And I just want to tell you that true brokenness should always take us there. It's not always something we can feel. It's not an emotion you need to create. But there is a place of just recognizing, God, I'm so sorry. I, 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 this, I'm not okay with this. This isn't, you know, in, in a weird place, this isn't boasting. It's like, look at us, we're sinners. It's like, no, we are sinners. And, and that's, that's shameful. That should be what Jesus said. Blessed are those who mourn because they're going to be the ones who are healed. It should be a brokenness that we say, okay, God, we are going to confess our sins and I'm sorry, I'm ashamed. We are ashamed that we are not what we ought to be. Now, he gives all of that, and in the midst of it, it's worth noting all the way through the confession, he takes great place to honor God, to make sure that he's confessing their sin, but at the same moment, God's incredible faithfulness. You notice how it works? He just tells us there in verse 9, he says, to the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, that we've rebelled against him. I mean, God's a good God. To him is the place of mercy. That's the reason we have hope. More on that in a moment. But we've not obeyed his voice in verse 10. We've not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his laws, which he set before his servants, the prophets. He says, you know, yes, and all Israel has transgressed your law, has departed so as not to obey your voice. Therefore, the curse and the oath written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, has been poured out on us because we have sinned against him. He says, God, all this has happened to us, just as you said, but there's a way that he's doing this that's letting us know that they've rebelled against God, but God has been faithful. That it's not in any sense that that God has been unfaithful in the midst of it. He's been entirely faithful. Now, again, that might sound odd to you, but I'm just saying it happens. Sometimes people almost confess their sin and blame God. Like, God, you, it's your fault. It's your fault that I'm in this mess. It's your fault that's, that's here. I mean, when, instead of saying, God, no, you've always done right, and I'm the one that's broken. We're the ones who've done this. In fact, he goes on again just to highlight it again that God is right in all of his dealings. Verse 12, and he's confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our judges who judged us by bringing upon us a great disaster. For under the whole of heaven, such has never been done, has been, has been done as what has been done in Jerusalem. As is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us. 
Yet we have not made our prayer before the Lord our God, that we might turn from our iniquities and understand your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept the disaster in mind and brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all his works which he does, though we have not obeyed his voice. He's able to look on all of this and say, okay, God, you know, you're right. I mean, you're absolutely right in everything that you are and everything that you do. And it's certainly what he would call us to understand into a place that that's what we would recognize that, that he's good and right in all of his dealings. That we would say, God, that's who you are. So it is a place of, of, of confessional. And again, much in this prayer is teaching us how to do that. But out of this confession, he has two things that he's going to intercede for. Part of this prayer that leads to intercession, where now that all of this statement has been made, and these things have been asked for, and he's told God, you know, hey, the mess that we've brought into our lives, again, good examples for us to learn from. But two things he's going to pray for. First of all, really, he's going to ask for forgiveness. Note it with me, and kind of note the word now. Verse 15. And now... O Lord, our God, who has brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and made yourself a name as it is this day, we have sinned. We have done wickedly. O Lord, according to your righteousness, I pray, let your anger be, and your, your fury be turned away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain for our sins and for, for the iniquities of our fathers. Jerusalem and your people are reproach to all those around us. Yeah, he comes here and he says, okay, God, in your righteousness, in your righteousness, God, would you do this according to your righteousness in verse 16? Would you bring this about? A place where he's going to ask God for his wrath and the judgment that should come upon them from their sin to be turned away. It's a good thing. It makes sense, right? I mean, that's part of the point of confessing our sins is to step to it when we're admitting our sin, but we're asking that God would deal with that and cleanse us it's worth me quickly making sure that this is really clear. I wish I had a lot of time to help you understand it, but please understand, confession itself doesn't do this. Confession itself doesn't bring about forgiveness. God does. Jesus does. That's why he had to come. That's why he had to die on the cross, because that's how we're fixed. Confession is powerful, and I'm holding it out to you this morning as a part that should be a part of your lives, but please understand, it's not the act of confessing alone that fixes it, because if somebody confesses their brokenness and they confess that to Buddha or Allah, it's not going to do them any good. It's not going to do them any good, because the confession doesn't fix the problem. The confession recognizes the problem, but it's confessing to God, who's the one who brings about the solution that actually gives us hope. I think about how it says it to us in the book of, of Romans. It says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. He says, here's how God's righteousness is revealed to us, that we get to see that this is that. And again, that's what Daniel's praying for in verse 16, God, in your righteousness. And that righteousness is the gospel. That righteousness where we can be made right to God is that. In fact, I think about it in Acts when they would say it to us this way. It says, therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man, Jesus, is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things, which you could not be justified to under the law of Moses. He says, here's this one who brings us forgiveness. And it's forgiveness that just brings healing into all of our lives that nothing else could do. Not the law of God, not the Old Testament, and certainly not any false religious system. All these other things can't do what only Jesus can do, that he is the way, the truth, he's the life, he's the means of our forgiveness, that he's the one that is that, and I need to make sure that you see that because that's what we're asking for. If out of confession, we can come and say, God, we, here's who we are, God, we need your forgiveness. We need you to make us right, and he does that through Jesus. He does that through Jesus. So part of Daniel's prayer is to recognize, hey, God, we desperately need that. But then the second part of his prayer really draws us to a place where he's asking for God's face to shine. Again, note it there in verse 17. It begins with that same word I asked you to notice a moment ago, now. 
Like, God, this is now what I'm asking for. Now, therefore, our God, hear the prayer of your servant and his supplication, and for, the, and for the Lord's sake, cause your face to shine on your sanctuary, which is desolate. Oh, my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city which is called by your name. For we do not present our supplications before you because of our righteous needs, but because of your great mercies. It's a great number of things that he says there, but in essence, the thing I want you to catch most is he's asking. He's saying, God, what we need right now is for you to see us. What we need right now is for your face to shine on us. It's one of my favorite prayers found often throughout the Bibles. In fact, it's found a number of places in the Psalms where it would say, like in Psalm 80, restore us, O Lord God of hosts, cause your face to shine and we shall be saved. Like God, break through, help us, your face to shine upon us. Or I think about the blessing. Most Sundays we end our service, and we will this morning, by me speaking over you the blessing that's found in Numbers chapter 6, which God says, here's how I want you to bless my people. In that blessing, it says, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. What I want you to understand is in that what we're asking for, what we're recognizing is what we need is him. What we need is his face to shine on us, and that actually accomplishes everything. Charles Spurgeon said it better than I can say it, so let me just put his quote on the screen. He says, Oh, that we might learn how to pray so that God should be the subject as well as the object of our supplications. Oh, God, thy church needs thee above everything else. He gives us his illustration. He says, A poor, little, sick, neglected child needs 50 things. But you can put all those needs into one if you say that the child needs its mother. It's like there's so many things it needs, but to have the mom there, that would, that's, that, that would solve all the problems. That would fix all the 50 things that are needed. So he says for us, when we think about who we are, so the church of God needs a thousand things. But you can put them all into one if you say the church of God needs her God. Wow. So hear that again. So Daniel is praying, and he says, God, please forgive us. Please take away our sin. And then he says, God, what we need is your face to shine upon us. And you might be thinking, well, wait a second. I mean, aren't we praying for Israel to be restored? Aren't we praying for Israel to become a nation again? Aren't we praying for the temple to be rebuilt and for the worship of God to be restarted? Aren't we praying for the testimony of God to be shining through his people? Yeah, all of that. But you know what that's all just included in? God, we need your face. We need your face. If we had your face, if your face would shine upon us, then all of these things, and certainly those are the things that Daniel's thinking through. Like, we need all of this, but God, it would be, it could be summed up in saying we need you more than we need anything else. And if we had that, it would answer the 100,000 things that we need. Guys, that's a good prayer. It's a good prayer of recognizing, God, this is where we are confessing our sins, stepping into this place of saying, God, we need this more than that. We need you and all that you would bring. Now, it's worth noting as Daniel ends this prayer, again, it's not a casual prayer. We already began it saying he was determined, but you can feel that determination again as he ends it. Verse 19, oh Lord, hear, oh Lord, forgive, oh Lord, listen and act, do not delay for your own sake, my God, for your city and your people who are called by your name. I mean, can you feel it? I mean, there's like, God, oh God, and, and the exclamation points, God, hear us, forgive, listen, act. It's a desperate prayer, but it's a good prayer. It's a prayer that shows us this whole place that Daniel's prayer becomes a good prayer for us to learn from. A place this morning that we get to see this place of confession and by God's grace, hopefully learn from it. So how do we land this this morning? How do we end this? I'll tell you what we're going to do. Why don't you close your Bibles, your notebooks, and we're going to end this morning by taking communion. It's the second Sunday of the month, and that's often when we take communion, but it also just feels like the perfect way for us to land what we've talked about this morning, that we've talked about confession, of dealing with our sin, and in essence, communion is a part of that. In a moment, we're going to take some bread and juice that are reminders of who Jesus is. And part of the point of communion is for us to come in and confess that, to say, hey, God, we need that. In fact, it's a practical present reality 
Some of you guys who walked through the Seder with us a couple weeks ago will remember that it's in this space that Jesus washed the disciples' feet. And it becomes that place of us saying, God, wash us. I mean, just, it's needed. And Jesus says, with, if you're not washed, we can't partner together. You can't be close. That there is this need of our confessing our sins, of our confessing and coming near to Him. So I think this is a great way for us to do that. Then we're going to step towards this and, and give you opportunity to do that and recognize that it is Him that we need. Recognize that, that it's His, you know, just that it's Jesus, it's His death, it's His resurrection, it's His power that brings us to pass, and that's what we're going to do. Now, as we head towards that, I do need to give you a couple pieces of instructions. Maybe you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus hey, this is a great space for you to to enter into that relationship. Maybe you recognize that you are broken and you are a sinner and you do need him. And there does need to be that space of of him being the one that would rescue you. And so if that's where you are this morning, we invite you into it. We invite you into this space where you could take communion and it would be a part of you asking him to be your savior. Now, if that's not going to happen and you don't know him, then we just want to tell you this. Hey, it's a great place just to not to take communion with us. Communion really is meant for believers. And so if you're not a follower of Jesus, then we just ask you, hey, let it pass by. In a moment, the ushers and greeters are going to pass out the elements. Just don't take it because it's not for you if you're not his, unless it's the day that you're giving yourself to him. But for you guys who know him, again, I just want to tell you, would you enter into this with me? Would you enter into a place where we confess our need for Jesus, where we just recognize that in our lives and recognize that he's the rescue and source that we need, and in so taking communion, that that's exactly why we're here. So I'm going to lead us in prayer for that. Worship team is going to lead us in song, and while they're leading us in song, the ushers and greeters will pass out the communion elements. When they pass it out, take the, the, the double cup that's got the bread and juice in it, hang on to it, and at the end of that worship song, we'll take this communion together. So with that in mind, let's ask God for this right now. Would you join me? God, we think about this moment of remembering you, Jesus, of declaring what you did for us in dying for us. God, we want to pray right now for any that don't know you right now, that this is their moment of confessing their sins, of turning from their sins and and being saved. We thank you that the gospel is proclaimed even in taking communion, that this is what are the source, this is what the solution is to the problem of sin. God, I ask for any here that are in that space that you would draw them to you right now and that you would be the Savior that rescues leaving those in your hands, I bring before you those of us who know you. And as we step towards this moment of communion, we just want to together enter into this through the lesson that we've learned this morning. And God, we just want to come and confess, we've sinned. We as your people have committed iniquity. We have not been what we ought to do. We've not obeyed your word. We've not followed you. God, do we make that confession, not just for us singularly, but right now, honestly, connecting with the entire body of Christ in this world. We are a sinful people that are greatly in need of you as our Savior. Our brokenness is so complete that it messes everything up in our lives. But God, you are everything that we need. You are the solution to this brokenness. What we celebrate this moment is that's why you came. That what we could never have done, you did. Coming and taking our sin, paying the whole price of our salvation so that our sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to you. God, I just pray right now in this moment that we confess that and we just ask for you to to, to find us a place where we're cleansed, where in practical ways you wash that away. And God, we are asking for your face. We are asking for your face to shine upon us even right now. As we enter into this moment, would you draw us to that? We pray for that together in Jesus' name. Amen. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come, I come, 
about this moment being able to just recognize as we hold these reminders in our hands that we remember that you came and gave your life for us. This bread, a reminder of our brokenness, of why you had to come. This bread, a reminder that we so desperately needed you to enter into this. And we pray right now that you would draw us into this space of just remembering you and celebrating that you are the one that came to rescue us. We do that together as we take the bread together. You guys take the bread with me. And Lord, we hold this cup in our hands, and it is a reminder of your shed blood. When we think about just the power that is there, Lord, to deal with every spot, every blemish, every blot in our lives, Lord. We thank you, Lord, that you have made provision for our sin, Lord. Let's take the cup together. God, we think about what we celebrated right now, and I think about its effectiveness. For those of us who know you, we have an eternal hope right now, a heavenly future, and that's because of you, Jesus. We recognize it's not us, it's you. It's what you've accomplished, and with great joy, we celebrate that, celebrate your fix to our brokenness, celebrate who you are and what you've accomplished, and that heaven is our joy now because of you. And we thank you for that, and we honor you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. May God meet you in that. May draw you to hope and help in that. If you want to pass your cups towards the aisle, the usher and greeters are going to come by, pick those up.